Amen. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well, and I hope that you are, have had a good weekend and uh, are ready for church today, man. It is good to be here with all of you. And if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We will begin there in a moment. And I'm going to set this right here. I'm going to try to hide the Starbucks label because I don't want there to be too much advertising going on. This is what is called product placement, where you're trying to hide the product, okay? Um, but it's really good to see everybody. Good to have all of you here today. And we're going to be talking about grace today. Uh, I'm going to have a two-part lesson. So today I'm introducing it. Next week we're going to talk about it more. And uh, our theme for the beginning of the year is, is it on there? Um, I don't know. No, well, the, we'll go back to the first. There we go. Something new. That's it. That's our theme for the year. Something new, the beginning of the year anyway. And we want to talk about new beginnings. We want to talk about fresh starts, you know, out with the old and in with the what? The new. That's right. And last Sunday, we discussed how we are born to grow. And that's what God expects out of all of us, uh, growth in our lives. And I concluded the sermon by asking us to, instead of just thinking about making wise choices, to make grace choices. And I hope that you did that during the week. You thought about some grace choices that you could make. And so we're going to explore that more today. We're going to be talking about God's amazing grace, which is always new and always fresh and always gives us the opportunity for fresh starts and new beginnings. Grace is wonderful. That's why we call it amazing grace, because it truly is amazing. You know, it is impossible to overthink grace. It is something that just ought to be on our minds and our hearts all the time. And a truly spiritual life must be lived in the grace of God. And it must be lived contemplating the grace of God. And I know that this is more difficult for some people than other people, because some people have guilty souls. And a guilty soul means that they dwell on their mistakes. They dwell on their, fail their failings. They have a hard time getting over those things. And a guilty soul has the propensity to belittle themselves and to feel like they don't deserve um, the, the benefits that they're given, or they don't, or they're not good enough. They'll They'll never be good enough. They don't have value. Um, they're, they're not lovable, these types of things. But what grace wants us to do, grace wants to help us with all of that. Now, I know in the crowd like this, some of you are people that have guilty souls. Some of the rest of you, you aren't. I don't particularly have a guilty soul, okay? I, I um, am the kind of person that when I make a mistake, I see the mistake, and I'm like, okay, let me go make another mistake, uh, because that's what I feel like life is about. It's about making mistakes, and then working through those mistakes, and getting through those mistakes. And so I tend not to dwell on the mistakes too long, although I know a number of people do. And what I'm saying is, today, whether you're a guilty soul or not, all of us need the grace of God. And we, we need to embrace God's grace, and we need to think about God's grace. Now, Philip Yancey, one of my favorite Christian writers, has 
uh, a definition of grace that I want to give you, and I, I just think it's one of the best that I've ever heard. A lot of people call grace God's unmerited favor, something that we don't deserve, but we get anyway. But this is how Yancey defines grace. Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. Now, I love that definition because it covers both sides of people. The people that are, you know what, I'm going I'm to make mistakes and I'm going to get back up and make more mistakes. Or the people that I made a mistake and I'm going to dwell on that. But both sides are covered with this. Grace means that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. So I'm not going to work for love. I'm not going to work for the grace of God because God loves me as much as is possible to be loved. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. And when I make a mistake, then I'm going to own the mistake, but understand that God forgives and I will learn to move on. Yancey writes this definition in a longer paragraph, so just try to pay attention as I read this. Grace makes it appear in so many forms that I have trouble defining it. I am ready, though, to attempt such uh, something like a definition of grace in relation to God. And that's when he writes, grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations. No amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools. No amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Grace is awesome. Grace is truly amazing. And I believe personally, from, I know in my own life I feel this, is that grace is the number one motivator, motivator for me to follow God and to follow Jesus and to strive to be a disciple. I just love grace. And you know what? I think Paul would also agree with that because Paul was the apostle of grace. Paul wrote over and over about the grace of God, and he saw grace through Jesus, and he saw grace through the cross of Christ, and he saw grace through resurrection and the new life that we can have in Christ. Paul was the apostle of grace. And so grace does deserve our attention, although we will never truly understand it or be able to grasp it fully. We need to contemplate it. We need to meditate on it. We need to think about it. It's just one of those topics that we need, to, we need to explore over and over again, though we will never fully grasp it. I had a brother one time who told me, and he actually told a few people this. He said, you know what? I've read a lot of books on grace, heard a lot of sermons on grace, heard a lot of teaching on grace, and I honestly feel like no one understands grace the way that I do. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I was like, okay, let me introduce you to another word, pride, (laughs) and a second cousin, hubris, because that's going to come out at some point in your life. But instead of doing that, I just stopped listening, because I was like, really? Really? You're you're that? And what I want us to see is we'll never get it. We'll never totally understand it. 
if you if you stand up like you're the expert on grace, then well, that's a problem because grace should be so overwhelming, so amazing that all we can do is try to grasp it, try to get a hold of it. And that's what I want us to do over the next couple of weeks. And even more as we begin the year is to look at grace. I study grace constantly in my life. <clears throat> and I have to admit, after studying for such a long time, I still don't totally get it. I still don't totally comprehend it because it's too great for me to comprehend. And if it ever gets to the point where I feel like I truly have comprehended it, it no longer is amazing grace. And I no longer stand in awe of it. So instead of attempting to completely understand it in knowledge, I just simply want to appreciate it, appreciate the grace that God has given me. I want to stand in front of the grace of God with my jaw just dropped and stunned at the magnitude and the majesty of him continually forgiving me of my sins, even though I don't deserve it. I want to reflect on how awesome his great is. And, you know, this is a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing to stand in awe. In fact, I was reading in the New York Times this past week a great article about awe, the science of awe. And scientists actually study this concept of being in awe. And one scientist wrote, awe activates the vagus nerves, which are a cluster of neurons in the spinal cord that regulate various bodily functions and slows our heart rate, relieves our digestion, and deepens our breathing. And the writer of that article went on to say, many of us have a critical voice in our head telling us we're not smart, we're not beautiful, we're not rich enough. All seems to quiet this negative self-talk. Isn't that a great thing? That's awesome in itself, that being in awe quiets negative self-thoughts. And I feel that about grace. When I think about God loves me in spite of myself, then I'm like, why? I, I shouldn't feel bad about myself. I should feel great because God loves me because I have his love. Grace helps me physically. It helps me mentally, but it also mostly helps me spiritually. And we all need to embrace the grace of God. Um, <clears throat> I was reading about an athlete <clears throat> also who, I, this was years ago, I was reading about uh, an athlete who specialized in, um, in the jump, in the, the high jump. Uh, and that's when you run down the track, and there's, there's the pole there, and you're supposed to jump over that bar, and they keep raising the bar. And every time you clear the bar, it's raised a little. So this athlete, she mentioned that in her sport, no matter how high she jumped, she would always end the competition for that day with a fail, because you keep jumping until you knock over the bar. And she could jump her best, her personal best, jump higher than she's ever jumped before, only to get ready for the next jump, knowing I can't do better than that. <laughs> that's, high, that's higher than I've ever jumped. I won't jump higher than that again. And sure enough, there's that fail. But she had to realize, you know what? Being, having experienced my personal best, that's enough. Let me forget the failure and let me experience the personal best. And I feel like that's grace because we're going to mess up. We're going to blow it. We're going to, to fall. But 
with God's grace, we get to experience our personal best. We could never live the lives we're living without the grace of God. A neurosurgeon named uh, Nee Addy uh, said uh, this, instead of wallowing in perceived failures, we can pause even for a couple of minutes to engage in focused breathing, meditation, prayer, or expressions of, of gratitude. Doing so will benefit health and emotional wellness. And then she writes this, and I think this is amazing. Grace allows every one of us to invite peace and harmony into our soul. Now, that's not me saying that. That's a neurosurgeon saying that, <laughs> who has studied that science. Grace allows every one of us to invite peace and harmony into our souls. You see, grace is a healthy choice. Now, Paul was the theologian of grace. And in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, this we're going to be looking at the next two weeks. So today I want to focus on verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> but then next week I ask you to read verses 4 through 10. Because honestly, the place where you need to camp out for the next two weeks is verses 4 through 10. But 4, to 10, 4 through 10 is written because 1 through 3 happens. Um, and so let me read the whole thing. We'll focus today on 1 through 3, <clears throat> and then we'll get to 4 through 10. Okay, I think I have this behind me here. Yeah, because this is going to sound very different than whatever uh, translation you're reading. And you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the supernatural forces of this world, the ruler of the supernatural powers in space, and the spiritual power who now controls the people who are disobedient. For we all used to live among them at one time, satisfied, satisfying the cravings of the flesh, following the will and the thinking of the flesh. We were by nature like the rest of the disobedient world, children who deserve wrath. But God, two of the most important words right there, actually three in the Greek, that's the transition right there. All of this happened, but God, because of his great love for us, is rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in transgressions, God made us alive in Christ. You have been saved by grace. God raised us up together with Christ and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that he might demonstrate to the coming ages the incomparable riches of his grace expressed by his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not of works, so that no one can boast. We are God's work of art, God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we might walk in them. So four through 10 is so encouraging, but you have to go through one through three before you can get there. And verses one through three, this is the human condition, the human condition. Paul focuses there first. We could go all the way back to Genesis with Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit when sin entered the world. And then at some point, all of us, every person decides to eat the forbidden fruit. We all choose sin, and we all become poisoned by sin. But God's antidote to sin is God's grace. So what is the human condition? Paul notes that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, transgression also means to trespass. 
when you trespass, you take the wrong step. Sin literally means, excuse me, to miss the mark. It was a term that was used in ancient archery. When the archer shot at the target and missed the target, that was considered harmatia, sin. You missed the mark. So sin is a transgression. Sin is a a trespass. Sin means to miss the mark. But what you also see in this passage is how sin destroys. You see the traumatic nature of sin, how sin cannot be taken lightly. Sin destroys. Sin creates trauma. When we hear of people suffering abuse and trauma because of sin, you know, it breaks our heart when that happens. But more importantly, it breaks God's heart. In Exodus 3, verse 9, it states, God hears the cries of the oppressed. Abuse anywhere in the world is wrong. It should not be tolerated. And also, it shouldn't be silenced when it happens. This is especially true when trauma happens in religious settings. Any type of physical or sexual abuse impacts both the body and the spirit. And as we know, this can be a problem in Christendom. To survivors of any of these injuries, we pray for healing. And we turn to Jesus because we know that Jesus does the work of healing. Jesus will shine a light and he will expose darkness. That is who he is and that is what he does. Jesus heals. Jesus heals those who have been stripped of their dignity. Jesus judges the wicked. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And so we turn to Jesus, understanding that we're living in a dark world and it is a world in which sin, unfortunately, has much dominion. But there is an answer, and the answer to the human dilemma is the divine resolution or the divine answer, and that's the grace of God. And that's where we're going to get to in verse 4. But let's explore verses 1 through 3 a little bit more. We weren't actually born in sin. We weren't born this way. Contrary to what St. Augustine and Stefani Joanne Angelina Jeremata, that's Lady Gaga, in case you didn't know. We, we weren't born that way. We're not born that way. We make choices, and in our choices, we sin. And in our choices, we actually become objects of wrath. That's, those are Paul words, not my words. <clears throat> we become dead in our sin when we choose sin. Paul writes, we follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And we become entangled in this sin. And sin can be very, very addictive and very difficult to let go of. But again, that's where grace, God's grace, enters the picture. God provides the antidote for sin. I read a sad story about Jesse Walter Bishop who was a a serial serial criminal. And I'll just read what the authors write here. At 12.21 a.m. on the morning of November 1979, the doctor pronounced Jesse Walter Bishop dead in the gas chamber in Nevada State Prison. Bishop was a career criminal who committed his first armed robbery at the age of 15. 
and he spent 22 of his last 27 years behind bars. Bishop renounced all efforts to stay his execution for murder he had committed, uh, that he had committed in 1977. At the time, he even waived his right to a jury trial. He immediately pleaded guilty. He could have been given an appeal of his case even minutes before entering the gas chamber, but he said no. And these were his last words. This is just one more step down the road I've been heading all my life. Let's go. What a sad ending. But the ending didn't have to be that way. And in our life, all of us experience sin. We all, in some form or another, battle the addiction of sin, the poison of sin. But the story doesn't have to end like this because of God's grace. We need to understand sin in order to understand grace. And that's why Paul begins here talking about sin. And Paul talks about three pulls that sin has on us. Three strong pulls that sin has on us. The first one is the world. The world has a pull on us. Paul wrote, when you follow the supernatural forces of this world. That's how I translate it. And I, when I think of this, the supernatural forces of the world, I think of that's the world on steroids, and that's the world that we live in. The world has a supernatural pull on us. Paul believed that. Paul believed in angels. Paul believed in demons. And sometimes it's like today we feel like it's, it's, that's too antiquated. That's passe. But it's not what the Bible says. There are supernatural forces working against us. And part of that is just in the way the world pulls us to itself to entangle us in sin. Um, four times a year, I get the Plow Quarterly in the mail. It's one of my favorite journals. And it's published by the Bruderhof movement. I'm sure you've never heard of the Bruderhof movement. Uh, they sprang from the Anabaptists in Europe. Maybe you've never heard of the Anabaptists in Europe either. But if you've heard of the Amish or the Mennonites, then it's that type of community. Their answer to this pull of the world is to separate themselves from the world. Their answer is to form their own communities and have vows and commitments to each other in that community, but not do much in the world around them. Uh, they share all their possessions. They live in a very tight, closed, and um, exclusive type of community. But when I, when I look at the Bible, the problem with that is I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see that that was Jesus's choice, that Jesus lived in the world. And Jesus said, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And that's our goal. Our goal is to realize that we have the pull of the world all around us. And we have to learn to say no. And it's the grace of God that motivates us to say no, but also Thanks to God and thanks to Jesus, they give us the power to overcome the world. So no matter what those supernatural forces are that are pulling us, God is stronger and God is greater and God gives us the strength. He will give us the strength. So that's one pull we have to fight against. The Satan, the second pull is Satan. I just call, call it that. Satan has a pull on us. 
Paul wrote this, when you follow the ruler of the supernatural powers in space. And so Paul believed there were supernatural powers in the world, but there were supernatural forces outside the world. And they exist outside the world. And I would put Satan in that category, Satan in that realm. And Satan is the great deceiver. And he has satanic minions that work all around him. Now, again, it's passe to talk about that uh, in our modern culture today. But it's very biblical to talk about that, even though it does seem antiquated. The thing about Satan, when you look at Satan in the Bible, Satan is there from Genesis through Revelation. He's a major character through the whole text of the Bible. He's just there, sometimes in the background and sometimes right up front, like when he's tempting Jesus in after then um, the Jesus in the wilderness and and uh, three times tempting Jesus. And so he's he's uh, talked. Peter talks about him as a hungry lion, wanting to devour us. He stalks us at every turn. He tempts us with the exact temptations that are meant to take us out. We need to understand Satan's schemes. And again, Satan is so powerful on our own, we can't overpower him. But thanks be to God, we don't fight on our own. Thanks be to God, he's given us his grace. We have Jesus, Jesus who has already won the victory over Satan through the cross and through his resurrection. So we trust in Jesus to fight this pull. And then the third pull is what I call the pull of the flesh. The pull of the flesh. Paul wrote, when you followed the spiritual power who now controls the people who are disobedient. The first two, he talked about supernatural power. Now he just talks about a spiritual power. He uses a different word right here. And this spiritual power is... um, it, it's it, it's for those who decide not to use it, it just is disobedience, basically. That's disobedient people. Um, but he talks about in verse 3, we all used to live among them at one time, satisfying the cravings of the flesh, following the will and thinking of the flesh. We were by nature, like the rest of the world, uh, disobedient, children who deserved wrath. So here he identifies it as the flesh. And what is the flesh? Well, the flesh basically is just the lust of our will, the lust of our body, the lust of who we are as people. And that's a major pull on us in our lives. And again, that is very, very difficult to uh, fight it against. It's very difficult to win victories over, but we don't have to do it on our own. Jesus helps us. Sin has its pleasure, even though it's fleeting uh, and, and it passes. We have to learn to say no to the cravings of the flesh. Clinton Arnold writes this, and I believe I have the quote right there for you. Paul twice speaks of flesh, the Greek word is sarks, as an overwhelming influence that ordered the lives before Christ, their lives before Christ, and thus completes his um, description of the triad of powers that formerly held us in slavery. Paul implies something more when he nearly personifies it, the flesh, by attributing to it thoughts and desires by portraying it as a power holding humanity in bondage and by contrasting it with the spirit of God. Now, this is our human condition. We were dead in our trespasses. In other words, we had been caught in the tractor beam. 
You guys watch the Star Wars movies and you understand what a tractor beam is, okay? It reaches out, it grabs a spaceship and pulls the spaceship back. Um, and uh, that's a tractor beam. We were caught in that tractor beam by supernatural forces, whether it's the world, whether it's Satan, or whether it's our flesh. And that pole is a very strong pole. It is so strong that we can't really fight it on our own and be victorious. But thanks be to God, God turns the tractor beam off. And he turns the tractor beam off through Jesus, through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. And this is when grace enters the picture. But we have to understand where we were and we have to understand where we will be if we say no to the grace of God. And that is not a pretty picture. However, the victory picture with grace is a much different picture. And that's where we go to in verses 4 through 10. And that's where I want to go to next week. I want to talk about the divine remedy. And I want to talk about grace and how awesome grace really is. But I also want to ask all of us, I ask you this week to think about, okay, what is it about the world? What is it about flesh that, that entangles me? And then explore that a bit and see ways that you can say no to that pull with, the, with grace and with the power of God. But honestly, I don't want you to spend a lot of time there. I don't want, because that should be our old lives. I don't want us to spend a lot of time wallowing in that. I want to ask us to spend a little time and then move on to really think about grace. And I want you to focus on verses 4 through 10. And I want to ask you even to find some phrases in 4 through 10 that you want to put to memory, that you want to keep in your life. That you, and I, I hope that you'll read it every day. Read verses 4 through 10 every day and reflect on that. You know, this idea of reflecting on what is good, what is purposeful, purposeful, and what helps us is powerful. Tommy Newberry, in his book, The 4-8 Principle, and a lot of us read that book this, this past year, had some classes on that book. Tommy Newberry gives this advice. He says, the most important part of your day is the first 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes. And so how do you spend the first 15 minutes of your day and the last 15 minutes of your day? And he says, make sure that you're intentional. Now, I know because I was a parent with young kids, okay? I know when you hear that, especially the first 15 minutes of the day, you might be thinking, how do I spend the first 15, 15 minutes of my day? Why don't you come spend them with me? And let's see how intentional those first 15 minutes of the day really are. Because it's chaotic, right? But what I would, what I would say is, as a little footnote to, uh, that he didn't give in the book, but I would have put in the book, is, okay, if you're a parent, the first 15 minutes you get free. Okay, the first 15 minutes you can be intentional. How do you spend those first 15 minutes? And then how do you spend the last 15 minutes? Because it's likely that you put your kids to bed and then you can focus a little bit at the end of the day. At the beginning of the day, I, I know it can be very, very crazy. So the, whenever you are able to focus during uh, the early morning, what do you spend that time thinking about? And Newberry says, 
this is the time where you really need to set your mind for the rest of the day. So I encourage all of us, sometime during the first 15 intentional minutes that we have, let's look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. And then the last 15 minutes of the day, let's look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Let's read it twice a day. And then we'll come back next Sunday and we'll talk about it. I know me, I'm an empty nester now, okay? And so um, that's where I am in life. I understand what it's like to raise kids and I empathize with you who have small children, uh, especially the beginning of the day. It is frantic, trying to get them out the door to school, that type of thing. But let me tell you what I do now as an empty nester in my first 15 minutes of the day. And please don't hate me, okay? Don't be haters, okay? Because, uh, hopefully you'll get there at some point in your life. But I, first thing I do is I make coffee, okay? Because that helps me with the rest of the 15 minutes that I have. <laughs> and I don't even consider that the beginning of the 15 minutes. That's just a prelude, okay? And some of you that have kids at home, your prelude to the first 15 minutes might be an hour and a half, okay? Uh, I don't know, but for me, it's a cup of coffee. I get a cup of coffee. And then I sit down in, in my office and I sit at my desk and I look out my back window and it's my view of the world right there. And it is so full of grace. I mean, I look around my office and it's full of grace. And I look out my window and I see Daniel's garden out my window and it reminds me of Daniel. In my first 15 minutes, I have Daniel with me as he's there in his garden, and as I am there with him. And right beside Daniel's garden, one of the last things we did, it was last December together, and for those of you who don't know, our son Daniel passed last year. But one of the last things we did together was we, we built a birdhouse, and it sits right next to the garden, and it sits right outside my window. It's my view of the world. It's my view of the morning. And I look at, and this, this birdhouse and bird feeder, actually, it's a bird feeder. And I just watch, I sit there and I, and I watch and I pray and I journal and I write and I watch as the birds wake up. I'm usually there before they are. And I watch them and usually it's one uh, sparrow that comes down, comes swooping down from my neighbor's yard and lands on the bird feeder. And I thought, and then when I see that, Again, I think of Daniel. Think of Daniel, and I'm just grateful to have the time in the morning to be able to be with him and to think, with, and to think about him. And then after the first sparrow, another sparrow arrives. And then finches arrive. And then chickadees arrive. And I was doing this just this morning as I was going over my sermon. I was looking at the notes, and I was looking up. And it goes from one bird to three birds to five birds. And then the cardinals come and the blue jays arrive. And there's a red-breasted woodpecker that comes every day. And then some downy woodpeckers that come. And then there are morning doves, sometimes a dozen morning doves that don't land on the feeder. They land on the ground and they pick up everything that has fallen. And uh, then the starlings come which I don't really appreciate them that much, but I put up with them um, because they just, uh, they drive the other birds off. And, and anyway, I won't get into, uh, yeah, I, I should skip the starlings, but a crowd begins to form. 
And sometimes it's 20 or 30 birds. And I watch these birds and I contemplate on them because they remind me of God. And they remind me of God because of the words of Jesus. Look at the birds of the air, which some would translate as consider or think upon. Consider the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? Therefore, do not worry, saying, I'm skipping down to verse 31, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive after these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Strive first. The birds remind me of what I need to be focused on during the day. They remind me what I need to strive after. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be able to sit and see the view out my window, which reminds me of Daniel, and it gives me an opportunity to be with Daniel. But I also am grateful for the birds because they remind me of God, and they remind me of his benevolent care, and they remind me of his love, and they help take the worries off my mind and give them to him. They help me set my mind, my heart, my attitude of God for the day. And this is part of the first 15 minutes of how I spend my day. And I wanna encourage all of us this week, find time, intentional time. After the hustle and bustle of the morning has died down, and you can just take a breath, take a breath and focus on God and his benevolent care. Get into Ephesians chapter two, two. read verses four through 10. Think of people that, you've, that you love. Think of people who have loved you. Spend time in grace and get enveloped in the grace of God because that is what stops the pull of the supernatural forces. It's God's grace but we have to put ourselves in his grace for his grace to be able to wash over us. Thank you.